This is the Serial at Midnight Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the Serial at Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland, and if you like low-budget movies, B-movies, schlock movies, this is the episode for you. I'm talking to Brett McCormick. Now, you may know that name because in 2023, just recently, uh, Visual Vengeance, which is uh, really blowing up in the that sort of like VHS low-budget movie scene, uh, it's a distributor, uh, part of Wild Eye, they reissued uh, uh, The Abomination and Replicator, uh, which are two Brett McCormick films, and at the same time, I'm gonna like pull pull the curtain back for you a little bit. At the same time, coincidentally, Brett McCormick watched one of my videos. He watched my video about Sam Katzman, uh, legendary B movie film f- film producer, and you know, it's like the Jungle Gym movies and all these things. Uh, watched my Sam Katzman video, and it's like this guy would appreciate my book, Texas Schlock. So he didn't even know I'd seen the uh, the Visual Vengeance releases. And he sent over his book, Texture Schlock, which is uh, B-movie, sci-fi, and horror from the Lone Star State. It's a little bit about Brett kind of talking about his uh, his entree into low-budget filmmaking in the 1980s. It's a little bit about why we love B-movies. And then just a whole lot of uh, a deep dive into the films and the careers of Texas low-budget filmmakers. And I'll just give you a little bit of an overview. I'm not going to read everybody here, but we got Edgar G. Ulmer, who I love, one of my favorite low-budget filmmakers. He's the guy behind Detour and uh, The Black Cat, which is the, the universal film with Bela Lugosi and uh, and Boris Karloff, where Bela Lugosi is like a... He's he's on the trail of uh, of the Satanist, played by Boris Karloff, for his wife. It's a crazy movie, pre-code sort of a thing. Um, Russ Marker, Jim Sullivan, Tom Moore, uh, Larry Buchanan, uh, Glenn Coburn, uh, Brett McCormick has, has written himself into the book here too. Um, it is a really, really cool book. So I'm going to put links in the description of this video where you can pick all this stuff up, but I wanted to kind of set the table here. This episode is Confessions of a Schlockmeister because we go to some really interesting areas here. How difficult was it to make these kinds of movies back in the 1980s, back in the 90s? Uh, and what happened after Replicator? Also working with David A. Pryor. You know, I did a... Uh, an audio commentary for the movie Kill Zone, which is directed by David A. Pryor, and I got to talk to the producer. Well, Brett also worked with David A. Pryor, uh, making movies in Mobile, Alabama. So, uh, where did Brett come from? How did he get started? Where is he going now? The book, what he's working on. If you love, like I say, if you love these low-budget movies, uh, this is the episode for you. So, listen. I had a blast with this conversation. You will too. Without further ado, Brett McCormick. I'm I'm Gen X, and we grew like my generation grew up with all this stuff, like the tail end of whatever, probably whatever your generation got to enjoy in its heyday. You know, we got Bogart movies. I that I always say this. People have heard me say this a bunch of times, but like I feel like I was the last generation to get maybe like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Humphrey Bogart movies and Mr. Ed all on at the same time on the same dial, you know? And so it all coexisted. (laughs) It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, like now everything's so, it feels so compartmentalized right now, but you know, 1986, 1987, something like that. I mean, it was everything that 
you know, all of movie history was accessible on that dial. And we didn't really have the cable, you know, like, you know, hundreds of cable channels yet. Um, and the, these, you know, antenna channels needed time to fill. And so they were like, well, let's throw some Marx Brothers movies on there. Or, you know, um, the, that's, the monkeys and Leave it to Beaver and all that stuff. Like, I grew up with that just right. as I grew up with whatever was new at the time. And so now I feel this, like, you know, where I'm at right now, I just want to go back to that right now. Yeah, we all have a tendency to, um, at some point, become nostalgic about something that no longer exists. What you were describing about the content on the television channels you had to choose from mm -hmm. um, very much reflects the way I feel about radio from the 60s, because in the 60s, your local radio station, you could hear the latest thing from Johnny Cash or the Monkees or Donovan or the Beatles or the Doors, you know, this mm -hmm. big mishmash of top 40 music, you know, was all coming across the same station. And I think it really helped me um, develop a more wide range of uh, appreciation. You know, because I don't listen to country and Western habitually, but I don't listen to any genre of music habitually. I listen to what I feel like is the best of everything I run across, you know. And I think it was nice that uh, without any real effort on your part, that was laid out in front of you back in the 60s. And I think now, thank goodness, we have the Internet and you can pretty much find anything but you have to know it exists before you can go looking for it exactly yeah if you don't know it exists <laughs> you know people and that's why when i'm you know i, I talk about the stuff that i do is because i just want to i want to share my passion for it and get people excited about it so when i make a video about gene autry which i think you watched right because you said right yeah i loved it um when i make a video about that like there's a bunch of people that are watching my channel they're like who's gene autry like what are exactly. you talking about but then it's in there, you know, gets in their head and they can now they have something that they, whether they ever explored or not, that's fine. But they have heard about it now and then they can go jump off. And I just did you know, I bought like three, 300 old Westerns by people that even people who like Westerns have never they're like Ken Maynard. I don't know who that is. I, I watched that video and I was thinking, OK, some old guy, probably older than me, bought all of these. And he never even bothered to take them out of the wrapper. So yeah. what was he thinking? Was he thinking, I'm going to preserve these? Or was he thinking, I'll get around to watching them one day and just didn't? Or what? You know? I, I know. Are you going to watch all of them? I've already started. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, back before Ancient Aliens was a thing, I went to a garage sale in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, back around... 2002 or something like that and actually it was an estate sale but a lot of the stuff was out in the garage and i went in and there was this box of vhs tapes and i said what's this and the woman rolled her eyes and said oh the old guy that lived here was a nut about ufos so he collected all of these videos and I said, how much for the whole box? And she's like 10 bucks or something like that. So I got this box with like 50 VHS tapes. 
And I learned through those tapes about Zechariah Sitchin and all of these guys that are sort of like huge in the UFO community yeah. and everything. And uh, although I wasn't like real, I was never a UFO fan the way I am like just a B-movie fan. Mm -hmm. uh, still, it opened my eyes and it was a serendipitous discovery, you know, to get this box full of tapes and find out all these crazy ideas that people had about UFOs and how serious they were about it and how seriously other people took them about it. You know? What did you do? Do you still have them? Like what happened to those tapes? Oh, heck no, man. Gosh, <laughs> my life has gone through so many changes since then. And I'm kind of a minimalist. I mean, I love yeah. movies and I would love to go through all of those movies that I see, especially the Giallo movies behind wow. you um, and watch some of the stuff that you've got on your shelves. But um, my DVD collection is maybe like 40, 50 DVDs. And before the year is out, I may have traded those to somebody for something else or, you know, traded them for a book at half price books. You know, uh, I really, as I've gotten older, I've become more and more of a minimalist. So this one little room that I'm in right now is where my editing gear is and I've got costumes and props and boxes behind me. And mm -hmm. uh, this is sort of like my little creative sanctuary here. And uh, beyond the paintings on the wall and stuff like that, I really don't, I, I just don't have the collecting gene as I might've had, you know, when I was in my early twenties, I went to garage sales and bought science fiction books. This is probably 1978, 79. And I'm thinking, maybe someday I can open up a used bookstore that just sells science fiction books, because I was really into that, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I got like hundreds and hundreds of books and finally filled up this closet and uh, just drove my wife nuts. And she relentlessly hounded me to get rid of that stuff, which I did. So that was like my last gasp of major collecting. And that was... Wow. A long time ago. Well, you know, <laughs> it's years ago. <laughs> I think sometimes I, I, yeah. I do, I'm coming as I'm getting older now, you know, I am starting to have this awareness that maybe collecting is a luxury of youth. You know, when you get older, you start to realize you don't have infinite space. You don't have infinite time and you don't have infinite interest either because you want to be able to jump around to things. Like I think a lot of the collecting community is arriving at a point right now where we're going we've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on these discs and we'll we've like the guy that bought all those old westerns i'm like a lot of them are still sealed on a shelf right we bought them to have them but if they're not bringing us any joy why do we have them and i think i it's not everybody but we, i am starting to see these questions pop up well so i think I think just possessing them did give you a certain amount of joy. And I could see the enthusiasm on your face as you were showing the different box covers and the fact that you got like seven copies of Mystery Mountain, you know. Um, you really did watch. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think what you're doing is a definite service. It's a service to me. And I think it is uh, YouTube in general. I, I learn about new things that I wouldn't otherwise know about by watching YouTube. And I'm reminded of things that I haven't thought of in years. So it, it's very helpful to me.
That's a good segue because, okay, so people I'll have already introduced you. They will know who you are and what you do. Um, But I want to just kind of like lead us here. You watched a video that I made about Sam Katzman and you said, hey, I saw your Sam Katzman video. I wrote a book and I'm going to hold this up. This is your textless schlock book, B-movie sci-fi and horror from the Lone Star State. The Sam Katzman video is what opened this whole conversation, right? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I was studying filmmaking at Brooks Institute in Santa Barbara back in 1979. And I ran across this book in the library at Brooks Institute called Kings of the Bees. And what it really was, was a collection of articles that had appeared in different magazines. You know, there was an article on Roger Corman, all these different people. Well, there was an article on Sam Katzman, who I really didn't know by name prior to reading that book, but I realized I'd seen dozens of his movies, you know, as a kid growing up. And uh, they called him a schlockmeister in the book. And from that day forward, schlock was the word I used, and it didn't, it was not pejorative at all. It was just sort of a subgenre of film that I appreciated and sort of wanted to emulate in my own experience. Well, that's interesting. So I want to ask you, I know you, we don't want to give the whole book away. It is a, a, a look at different Texas B-movie filmmakers. Um, but in your, you, you have a little chapter here called Rationale. First of all, there's a link to this book in the description of this video, this episode. If you're listening to the podcast version, check the show notes. There's a link to it so you can pick it up. But you start out by saying, why do good people like bad movies? And and then you proceed. Like, I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that because I think it's fascinating. Smart people, intelligent people liking very bad movies, right? What What's elaborate? I've gotten a lot of grief about that all my life. And uh, one of my earliest memories on that along those lines was uh, when I was eight or nine, maybe, somewhere in there, uh, my mom and her good friend, Marilyn, my mom had two boys, me and my brother, and Marilyn had two girls, and my dad was overseas, and Marilyn was without a husband at that time. I guess she had gotten divorced or something, and they decided we're going to go to the drive-in theater, the Mansfield drive-in here at Fort Worth, and uh, watch these Doris Day, a double feature Doris Day. Well, of course, you're in a car with four young kids trying to watch a Doris Day movie. It, things are not going to go well, okay? <laughs> but it was a double screen drive-in, and on the opposite end, I could turn around and look through the back window of the car, and I could see Jason and the Argonauts playing on the screen behind me. And I'm like, uh, wondering why we didn't go see that movie, and I keep bringing it up. And uh, since I couldn't hear the sound of the movie, when a monster would come up, I would make my own monster noises, you know? And uh, my mom was like, you know, yelling at me to stop doing that and quit wrecking their experience of the Doris Day movie. Well, uh, after the first feature, we went into the snack bar and there was a poster for an Al Adamson movie. And I don't remember. I, I think it might have been Blood of Ghastly Horror. But I saw that 
And of course, I was really drawn to it. And I asked if we could come back to see that because it was like a coming attraction at the yeah. stretch. And my mom goes, no, that is trash. We don't watch movies like that. She tried to explain to me that um, there were good people in Hollywood who made wholesome movies like the Doris Day movies we were watching. And then there were these really people who played to the lowest common denominator and people's baser instincts and tried to attract ignorant people. And I didn't want to be one of those ignorant people that went and watched movies like that, did I? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did want to be stars in your eyes. I wanted that poster, (laughs) you know, when she it was the first time I had heard the word trash applied to a work of art or anything someone had created. So when she said trash, I was confused as part of my job in the family was to take the trash out to the curb on trash day. And I'm wondering, are they going to throw this poster away? Does that mean I could come and get it out of their trash can? You know, it's a lot, a whole lot of new ideas where I had to grapple with them as uh, I went through that experience that night. And then I found out uh, going forward that I was always drawn to things that even kids my own age thought was trash, you know, and I I took a lot of ribbing. When I made my first movie and showed it at school, uh, one of the kids in my PE class asked me why I'd done it. And I said, I'm going to make movies, you know, I'm going to, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a filmmaker. And at that time, uh, Andy Warhol's movies were all over the media. And he's like, so you're going to be like another Andy Warhol, right? And I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe, but I'd never seen an Andy Warhol movie. So I didn't know what he was talking about. But he meant that as an insult, like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, you're going to be an Andy Warhol. <laughs> I knew already that Andy Warhol was gay. And I felt like he was slamming me about that, oh, as well, questioning okay. my masculinity. Right. And uh, also, uh, you know, it, growing up in a community that was mostly Baptists and Methodists and working class people at the middle school when the guy made that comment. I mean, there was a real uh, redneck, racist, sexist um, uh sort of caveman vibe you know that was considered the norm and if you didn't play along with that you took a lot of ribbing and sometimes got in fights and i was that kid that took the ribbing and got in fights (laughs) right yeah you're texas i'm alabama it's not that different it's pretty close i lived a year in alabama in mobile when i was i had my fifth birthday there Okay, well, see, this is we got to segue to David A. Pryor at some point because he right. lived in Mobile for a while, and I I grew up in Mobile. So, right. okay, what to we're how did you make your first? How did you get into movie? Like, how did you actually start making movies? Like, lead me up to we're we're getting to the abomination. I, that's where I'm oh. leading us here. It's like how did we? How did you build the skills to make a movie? You know. When I was 12 years old, I read uh, an article in Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine about a group of kids at a boys club in New York who were making their own Frankenstein movie using home movie equipment. And uh, for years already, I had been spending my allowance every weekend going to the movies, you know, going to the movies was my favorite thing to do. And there was a local old style theater and right there in the neighborhood, and I could see a double feature uh, for 35 cents back then. And uh, 
So I read this article about these kids making their own movie, and I'm like, it was like lightning struck. I was like, why had I never thought of this before? There were several family members in my extended family who had uh, movie cameras and projectors and stuff, and they would set up and show home movies of the family at, on holidays when we had gatherings and stuff. And it just, it was like, I felt like such an idiot that it had never occurred to me that I could make my own movies. So I got together with John Schultz and John Cottrell and Zeke Zelazny and Bill Hobbs, and we made a werewolf movie about a month later in my backyard there uh, at 4920 Meadowbrook Drive in Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, whoever lives there right now, I feel so I feel like I hope nobody goes and knocks on their door. Like, <laughs> I want to see the magic. <laughs> Show me the backyard. It was kind of a magic place. It was a really, really old house. It was like the first house that had been built in that neighborhood. And it was made out of sandstone, just huge chunks of sandstone. So it looked like a castle, which I loved, you know. Yeah. And uh, it was it was a great location for us to make our cheesy little werewolf movie, which was about three minutes long. We showed it at school. Uh, the kids loved it. And was it Super 8, because, 8 millimeter? Uh, the first one was 8 millimeter. Okay. And then uh, my dad bought me, my dad was in Vietnam and he had uh, PX privileges, so he could get a really good deal on a Super 8 camera. So he bought me a nice Canon Super 8 camera sort nice. shortly after that. And I started shooting on Super 8, which was infinitely easier than threading those spools of 16 millimeter film and then flipping it over and exposing the other side, you know, like you used to have to do. Well, and you would have to go have the film developed and then you'd, did you right. do any, you would have to edit it, right? Well, like we edited it in it? camera. We okay. edited it in camera. Okay, next we need a close-up. And so uh, if there was too much of a lag between the shots, we might cut a few frames out and bring it together with the splice. But basically, we tried to edit in camera because it was just seemed like the thing to do. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you shot this. You showed it to the kids at school. Is this the movie that the kids like, hey, what are you going to be, Warhol? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, I continued making movies from the time I was 12 to the time I graduated high school at the age of 17. So for about five years there, I was actively making movies. Uh, in my high school years, I was best friends with uh, Bob Camp, who went on to be the Ren and Stimpy, the creative director on Ren and Stimpy. And so we did some animated films when I was hanging out with Bob and, uh, took one year of film studies at the University of Texas at Arlington under Andy Anderson, who uh, is pretty, you know, kind of had his 15 minutes of fame with uh, a couple of independent uh, feature films he did after that. One was called Positive ID. Uh, when Bob and I were students there, we hassled Andy over and over again. Why don't, as a class project, we make a feature film? We had all this 16 millimeter gear and stuff. And we just thought, you know, it would be much better real life exercise than everybody making their own little five or 10 minute film, you know? And he's like, no, I wish I had your enthusiasm. I used to want to make features. Uh, I don't do that anymore. Well, I left there. A couple of years later, he did exactly what Bob and I had had suggested he do. The class got together. They did a movie called Interface, which was sort of a really low-budget science fiction-y mystery kind of a film. And they got it 
released through Vestron and got a $90,000 uh, advance at that time, which is kind of crazy. Those days were over pretty quick. Yeah. But um, so I always resented that, that he wasn't ready to do it in 1976, but he did it, you know, five, six, seven, eight years later. Do you think your conversation was any sort of a catalyst that might have encouraged him to, to go that distance? Well, I think everything is a catalyst for everything. I believe seeds are planted in our minds every day that grow and ultimately come out in some form. Uh, whether he remembered that being a catalyst or not, uh, I don't know, but I think probably. So I guess you never follow, you never sought him out to talk to. Oh, him oh yeah, I saw him after that. I saw him after that a few times. Um, rented some equipment from him when I was doing my first feature film, and I think I gave him a little grief about that, and he's like, "Eh, you know." Andy was Andy was a character. He's a little short. Um, guy from Florida, kind of swarthy. Dark hair, had an Italian look about him, but I don't know that he was Italian. Uh, but he was really definitely uh, one of these people you had to work at to have a conversation with him because he was kind of an introvert. And you'd say something to him and he'd kind of stare at you for a minute while he's thinking what he's going to say to you or something. I don't know. I, I his personality was a type I had not encountered before, so I didn't really know how to deal with them. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, the Abomination. It's your first movie, right? It's first... not my first movie. The first movie was Tabloid, which we shot on 16 millimeter. And uh, it was my idea to do a spoof of tabloid journalism, which was kind of a hot item at that time you know like weekly world news that kind of stuff right. yeah uh, bat boy found in cave that kind of crap and uh so i thought let's i i got matt devlin whose name was matt shapen at that time uh and glenn coburn who had already done a feature of his own called bloodsuckers from outer space I enlisted them, and the idea was we would make a wraparound, but that each of us would write and direct our own tabloid story and put it together to be an anthology film. So we did that, and uh, God, it was a fiasco. We spent like $112,000 on it, and it was just an unmarketable movie when we finished. Where did you get $112,000? Uh, just beating the bushes, friends, relatives, people who had money that I knew who were uh, willing to take a risk and help these kids get their film career off the ground. Well, that's mid-80s money too, right? So that'd be like double. You know, oh like my two, God. When I think about right? how much money we wasted on that film, it still hurts today. You know? So you didn't get so, your money back on it? Uh, no. But the good thing that came out of it was going through that process, I realized I should have gone, instead of listening to the so-called experts, whose advice always led me to spending a lot more money than I wanted to, I should have just done a down and dirty, cheap horror movie, which is what I had wanted to do to begin with, you know. 
And uh, I think Matt would didn't want to do that because he didn't think it was respectable. He wanted to do something that might possibly be uh, what we called an art house flick back then, you know. And uh, so anyway, after going through all the trials and tribulations and visiting a lot of distributors and seeing what was selling on VHS, I became convinced that the way to go was to shoot two horror movies back to back. 10-day schedule for each movie. Uh, after doing a transfer test of Super 8 film, we thought, eh, it's, if, if the only place anybody's ever going to see this is VHS, why not, you know? So we shot on Super 8. We did Abomination, and we did Ozone, Attack of the Redneck Mutants. And uh, it was a long, drawn-out process. Uh, once the films were finished, it was really, really hard to find someone to distribute it. Uh, by the time we had gone through the process of posting and trying to market um, tabloid, ozone, and abomination, I realized uh, I wanted out of that partnership. So I dissolved the partnership with Matt. He took the two horror films uh, as part of his so I took tabloid, which is impossible to market, but it had a lot of money from my family in it, you know, so I felt obligated to try and do something with it, yeah. um, which it, it never, I, I made a few deals, made a few thousand dollars here and there, but never anything near what we had spent on it. And, and justly so it was, it's a bad movie. Um, but some people like bad movies, and we did have a screening of Tabloid a couple of years ago at uh, Texas Frightmare Weekend, and the audience had about 150 people in it, and they all loved it. And when I asked afterwards if this was available on DVD, would you buy it? Most of them raised their hands. So, you know, it's things, time things has equalized. Time. <laughs> time equalizes everything, and I mean, we yeah. should, I've I've already mentioned this in the intro, I'm sure. But I mean, they, these lavish visual vengeance um, uh, editions of the Abomination and of Replicator. I mean, they're they're loaded with special features and like all kinds of stuff that could only happen like right now. You know, this is the kind of this is what's happening right now in the exactly. collector and the the horror uh, the horror community. Yeah, anything survives long enough, it eventually becomes respectable. I think it was John Waters that said that. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's very true. Okay, so you've made these you've made these movies at this point, and you've dissolved this partnership. Where are you at? Do you go? I got to keep going. Or are you thinking about? Oh yeah, yeah. I was, you... I was, I, I took a job at Allied Film and Video, which was a post production and film lab place in Las Colinas uh, at the Dallas communications complex there. And uh, so I'm working that job, but on the weekends I shot a movie called highway to hell. And I got, uh, I went to a guy named Tom Moore who had this really down and dirty. He was the only film distributor in Dallas, Texas. And he had this really cheesy company where he sold mostly foreign rights to the really cheesy films. I went to him and I said, if I make a movie and you get to choose a name to play a small part in it and uh, you get approval of the script, what's the most you will agree to pay me on delivery? 
And he said, for the foreign rights, I'll give you $20,000. So I went and shot a movie for $10,000. And uh, he hired Richard Harrison, who had been uh, a huge star in Europe back in the 60s and was now doing B-movies out on the West Coast and living in Malibu. And uh, Richard Harrison came out for a couple of days and we shot a few scenes with him and put him in the movie as a, a police detective kind of a guy. Uh, but it, the story is basically about uh, uh, this killer, Toby Gilmore, escapes from prison and manages to get in a car with this young woman who's driving home for the holidays to see her family. And uh, he terrifies her, torments her. Uh, she gets away from him, then he catches back up with her. So she's like going cross country in this very rural area and keeps crossing paths with this killer, and he's killing people right and left uh, all along the way. Um, Fran Tucker, the, the female lead, was played by Blue Thompson, my ex-wife, and uh, who was also in Ozone and Abomination. And uh, a guy named Benton Jennings, who I'd known from high school and who's been out in L.A. for a long time and is kind of a character actor out there now. He played... Um, Toby Gilmore, the psychotic killer. Really, really down and dirty, cheap, another very crude movie. But because I knew I was going to get $20,000, that was the first movie I did on my own. And it was also the first one that immediately turned a profit. And the like the rental, it was the, like uh, rental sales and things like that. This was, we're talking about like video store stuff, right? Uh, well, the deal I have with Tom Moore, he paid me $20,000 for the uh, foreign rights. So mm -hmm. he had the rest of the world. I retained the U.S. home video rights, and I never really made any money off of that. You know, no? it, get, it got released by Radon, and then as soon as they were due to pay me, they filed bankruptcy. So, you know, I, I really didn't have any this is the narrative is is emerging here you know <laughs> opportunistic so you know young filmmaker with a vision makes movie uh meets opposition and things like you get a dissolved partnership here you've got this company that's going bankrupt and here it, like it seems like there's a lot of challenges being thrown your way i'm just kind of curious as a as an emerging filmmaker how do you meet those challenges what's your What's your mindset? How are you overcoming these things? Gosh, that's hard to explain. Well, I this drank is the Merv Griffin. I drank a lot back in those days. Okay, okay. <laughs> Which ultimately led to a whole other set of problems. But um, I was married. I had kids. Uh, I was always working a full time job making movies on the weekends, typically uh, four or five weekends in a row. We would shoot a, a thing and then I would edit, you know, on VHS with time code in yeah. my back room at home and pull those numbers off of that edit and take them to an online suite. Um, after Highway to Hell, uh, I read an article about Fred Olin Ray it seemed like he was an up-and-comer in L.A., and I thought, he's doing the kind of stuff I want to do. Maybe I can hook up with this guy. So I sent him my demo reel with the trailers from those four films and asked him 
if I could make a film for him. And he got back in touch with me and uh, had me do a movie called Macon County War with Dan Haggerty. Uh, he brought Dan Haggerty down here for three days and we shot this kind of rural, supposedly an action film, but there's very little action because <laughs> the budget was incredibly low. And uh, I that film probably doesn't hold up very well. But about that time, Dan Haggerty was, had been listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's most recognizable face. So he was a great guy to have in a no-budget movie. Re I didn't know that fact, that little tidbit. <laughs> Yeah. Is it, the, is it the beard? What I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, what was your experience like working with Fred? Oh, be you can be honest. Fred has a, a to put it politely, Fred has a personality that's an acquired taste. If you're sort of a zen-like person, which I am most of the time, uh you see that he behaves the way he does because of his own insecurities and issues, you know, but he's like, uh, I think he must've read somewhere along the way about the old cigar chomping, um, uh, gruff studio poverty row guys that made pictures. And so he kind of developed that persona for himself, you know, yeah. uh, abrasive, uh, often saying things that just add fuel to the fire instead of, you know, using diplomacy or whatever to put the fire out and move on, you know, yeah. in a way that makes sense in the long term. Uh, we did ultimately have a falling out and um, I didn't talk to him for a long time. But I, I mean, there are many things I appreciate about Fred and I, I am very grateful that I got that opportunity to do that work with him. Uh, I did write a screenplay. It was called Athena's Last Stand when I wrote it about a female hitman. Um, and I was supposed to direct it, but I got busy making films for David Winters. And uh, Fred finally got the money together to make it. And uh, so I told him I'd help him find a director and uh, a friend of mine, a local friend in Dallas named Gerald Kane, who had a, a commercial filmmaking operation there in the Dallas communications complex, was a huge Roger Corman fan, a casual acquaintance of mine, kind of a friend. Um, he really wanted to direct a movie. So I set it up for him to direct Athena's Last Stand, which became Fatal Justice. And, uh, in exchange, he traded me for uh, 30 hours of free online editing at his facility, which I could use for editing, you know, my other feature projects. Well, tell me a little bit about producing. So we talked about filmmaking. Let's talk about producing because you've worked with a lot of interesting people. And I want to get to David A. Pryor because I have a special interest in David A. Pryor. But just tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, after I did the film for Fred, I was casting about for other work. He put me in touch with Dave Dakota. I did two really dreadful shot on consumer video projects for David Dakota's video label he had going at the time, where J.R. Bookwalter and others had been making shot on video films for him. And uh, 
after I did that, I asked him, you know, I told him I, I really needed more work, more film work. And could he helped me. And he said, well, have you tried David Winters? I think David is a survivor. He's putting out two titles a month over at Action International Pictures. And I had met David once before, uh, and he kind of came across as a con man. But I sent him my promo reel, and uh, he saw it and almost right away offered me a film to do. You know, the budget was low enough that it made sense for him. And we did a movie called Armed for Action. And uh, he sent down Joe Estevez to be the name in the picture and then we did a, a few months later we did a movie called blood on the badge again with joe estevez and mostly local cast and crew and uh so i did those two 16 millimeter movies for him then he was in deep financial troubles i mean he was always one of those guys who lived beyond his means. He was making lots of money, but he was blowing it. And he was really into this uh, high roller lifestyle, you know. And uh, so he had a movie going called Mardi Gras for the Devil in Mobile. And the producer was like getting tired of taking the heat for the fact that his cash flow was such that he was, she was having to make all kinds of excuses to talent agents and uh, people. And it had a lot of recognizable names in that film. It had John Amos and um, uh, gosh, I'm old and I'm having a senior moment, but it had five or six well-known names in the movie. And it was kind of a horror detective story. So, when the producer quit, they had a lady named Jill Silverthorne who was like associate producer or something. And she wanted to take over producing, but she wanted them to hire someone who could become the fall guy for all the flack they were getting from, from the uh, agents and everyone. So someone that could be blamed for everything. So I didn't know that, but they said, hey, man, you want to come produce a movie in Mobile? Uh, we got two more weeks left. We shot for two weeks already. We need someone who can just come head this thing up and finish out the last two weeks. And we'll pay you $2,000 a week. And I'm like, OK, sure. So I got there. And three days after I'd been there, I made sure David Winters gave because I could see what was going on. Made sure David uh, Pryor actually was writing the checks because he was directing and sort of running it. And I had him pay me for both weeks in advance. I sent the money home and then I just kind of walked through the paces and did as little as possible for the remainder of the shoot because it was... It was just a shitstorm from the word go. And uh, but it was great working with David. I had great admiration for David Pryor. David Winters, not so much. Uh, three different occasions. David Pryor to me was one of those Hollywood maverick kind of people from a bygone era, but he was living it out in that era uh, in a way that was very remarkable. Like uh they had gambling boats in Biloxi and three different nights while I was there, I went and watched him play uh, blackjack 
and he was counting cards and he had uh, Michael Ironside, the actor, at the other end of the table kind of playing to him to help him win. And one night he won $40,000. Another night he won $80,000 and then lost it all. And another night he won $60,000. He sent that money back to California and paid off his house. But that was the kind of guy he was. I mean, he would he would definitely take risks and he ended up paying off his house while we were making that movie by gambling. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, that was crazy. I, I had cool, to admire crazy. the guy's butt, uh, guts. Yeah. Where in Mobile were you guys? Do you know? Can you do you remember where you were? It was uh, a hotel that kind of looked like old New Orleans. You know, it had some wrought iron work on the front the of downtown, it. probably. The, yeah, downtown. Close to the water. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then we went and shot for a day or two and actually in New Orleans because he wanted a riverboat. You know, they had a scene. Wasn't a very good scene, but I mean, it was an attempt to get a little more production value. Um, so we're not, are, we, we're not a, are we at Night Trap yet? We're not talking about Night Trap. We're talking about Night Trap. Mar yeah, it was, okay. it was called Mardi Gras for the Devil. And I think it's available as Mardi Gras for the Devil on okay. some streaming venues. Yeah. Um, I did a commentary for a David A. Pryor movie called Kill Zone yeah. with the producer of that yeah. movie. And he was telling me some stuff about working with David A. Pryor. And they had a they had an interesting relationship because after Kill Zone, it was kind of during Kill Zone. And I should encourage people to go check out that commentary. It's on the MVD Entertainment Blu-ray. But um, basically what happened is during the making of this movie, they had plans for future stuff they were going to do. And then David A. Pryor was like, I'm just going to go do my own thing. And he creates, you know, the action international pictures, which I always, even the name AIP, you call it AIP. Right. You're tapping into American international pictures. Exactly. Um, which is so the I same thing Fred some... Olin Ray did too. Yeah. Fred Olin Ray's company was also AIP. It's smart, but it's also that uh, it's, it's, it shows that they were fans of that. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. enterprising. It's also, I don't know. I keep thinking about what your mom told you. I keep thinking about what your mom told you when you were a kid. She's like, there's the good people that make movies for everybody. And then there's wholesome the movies that are uplifting, not ones that drag you down in the gutter and lead you on the path to hell. Yeah. With those action <laughs> international pictures, people those uh, taking a mobile movies, yeah. and you're gambling at a riverboat casino. Um, so, okay. So, <laughs> You guys parted. You like you had a good amicable relationship with David A. Pryor. Like things stayed pretty. Uh... I liked him a lot, and I very much would have liked to have um, had the freedom to go where he was and just hang out with him and learn more from him. He he really had uh, just a never say die kind of attitude. He had done like a shot on video thing first. And then I think it was Kill Zone, or maybe it was some other film, but his first shot on film movie, he went out and they shot for like days in the woods. They had rented uh, film cameras to shoot with. And it was only after they got the film processed that they realized they hadn't recorded any audio. They, they assumed that like video, that it was automatically recording audio, you know? Yeah. Uh, so this is how 
uneducated about the process they were, but he and his brother just toughed it through and, and kept on going. And, uh, you know, you have to admire that, you know? Yeah. The sad thing is, so I had a very sheltered childhood, uh, which we're not, we don't have to get into that here, but I, David A. Pryor died. He spent his last days in Mobile. And if I had known who, I didn't know who he was in the 1980s. I was just a kid, right? right. Um, and I would not have been allowed to see those movies anyway. But if I had known who he was, I probably could have gone and met him and talked to him. And I just, I, I hate that I didn't know until it was too late that, that there was right. somebody that was that, that enterprising spirit, you know, that I could During have. During that uh, time that I was there with him, um, he said, I'm moving to Mobile. And I said, really? And he's like, yeah. And I said, why? And he said, I just like the vibe down here. He had become friends with all the people on the police department. He told me that uh, when he came to town that time that the local police chief had showed him a surveillance video from a gas station where a woman had been chopped to death by a jilted lover with an axe, you know, in the booth at the gas station. And uh, so he had that kind of hanging out, playing poker with the local people. Yeah. And uh, I think he just liked that he could be the big fish in, in Mobile as opposed to one of the smaller fish swimming around in Los Angeles. I want to ask you about Replicator because that's another one that Visual Vengeance has recently put out. You got to work with Brink. Um, I know you shot that movie really, really quickly, right? I love that movie. Uh, let me start by saying I had very little support from anyone, even my friends, when I did The Abomination. And I had even less support when I did Replicator. But those are two films I wanted to do along my path as a filmmaker. And those are the only two films out of the many films I did that people are still interested in watching. So uh, I think... Having this um, these new releases has uh, sort of given me a sense of vindication that I was right to go ahead and make these movies, even though everybody was telling me it was a mistake. Um, I had just shot, uh, I had done a movie called Takedown with Chris Heldman playing the lead. I had produced that. I had done a movie called Time Tracers with Jeff Combs, time travel picture, did a movie called Biotech Warrior, which was my first uh, shot on 35 millimeter film that I directed. And we had a refrigerator full of short ends. And I added it up and I thought, you know, we're real careful. We could shoot a feature with the film we have left over here. So I went to Keith Jornis, who was a film editor at uh, Remington, York. And I knew he was an aspiring screenwriter and asked if he could write a script in a week and make use of these masks and all this stuff that we had lying around and make sure there was plenty of bare breasts in the movie. And uh, so he and T.G. Williams, the CGI guy, there uh they came up with the story they wrote the script in a week we uh in a few days time we uh cast the thing out of people that we already knew from these other films that we had done 
and uh, the girls, you know, came from uh, gentlemen's clubs there in Dallas. And uh, we were trying to shoot on a long weekend, like Friday through Sunday or Friday through Monday. Or maybe it was Thursday through Sunday. But anyway, it was intended to be a four-day shoot because I was trying to do the Little Shop of Horrors thing that Roger Corman had done all those years before. Well, that's what, you talk in the entry, you have multiple interviews on the disc, and you talk in several of them about how you had read that Corman had done a movie. I, I don't remember how quickly it was, but you wanted to see if you could do that yourself. Yeah, yeah, that was my idea. So uh, we shot it. And uh, right after we finished shooting that, that was my fourth film of the year. And so immediately I put together a letter to Roger Corman and uh, told him I was trying to match his record. And this was like late September, early October that I sent him the letter in my promo reel. I said, I'm trying to do one more film before the year's out so I can match your record. He immediately got back with me and gave me a film that we ended up calling Rumble in the Streets, which was a remake of the movie Streets starring Christina Applegate that he had done several years before that. Um, so I finally got to do my movie for Roger Corman, which is something I had been telling people I was going to do since I was 12 years old. And uh but that meant Replicator ended up sitting on the shelf because I immediately went into pre-production on the film for Corman. We had all this film that we had shot. I think, I can't remember if it was uh, Keith Jornis or if it was Haley Richter over at Aries Productions, but somebody eventually ended up editing the footage together that we had shot in those four days. And it was only 75 minutes long which was wouldn't have been a problem today, but back then was a huge problem because everyone wanted a minimum of 88 minutes and they preferred it to be over 90. So uh, that's when Win Winberg at Aries Productions said, I like what you've got going here. I want to put a little more money into it and get a couple of recognizable names. And uh, he had recently done an academic uh, film with Gunnar Hansen on some topic uh, and so he had Gunner's phone number and he called Gunner and asked if he would be willing to be in it. And then I got in touch with Brink. And so on like two consecutive weekends, I think it was, or pretty close to consecutive weekends, we shot their scenes and that gave us the additional running time that we needed. Uh, even so after that, uh, when and his father started a distribution company called Group Two Entertainment, and they really didn't accomplish much with the film. So it was, we got a little exposure on Canadian cable and uh, I think maybe a VHS release somewhere along the way. Um, but it wasn't until about 2010 when Glenn Coburn started whacked movies and asked if he could re-release it that the film started getting some traction and really uh, sort of uh, gathering a following. See, you were like two years too early with it because the DVD boom was just a couple of years later and then everybody was just starving for whatever they could get right, their hands right. on. By that time, I was so burned out on all the ups and downs of film and 
my marriage of 18 years ended and everything. And I just kind of, for about 20 years, I really didn't want anything to do with movies at all. What did you so, do with yourself? I mean, you just kept working the day not job? Not much, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Until 2014, I, I had a really bad drinking problem and drugging. And uh, this March, I will be clean and sober for 10 years. So congratulations! Uh, most of what I'm proud of in my life, um, I've accomplished since that time. I've written a lot of books and uh, uh, have gotten these films back out there to an audience that appreciates them. And uh, I'm starting to make some more little micro budget movies of my own. So, and doing it with a clear head instead of through the fog of alcoholism. So let me ask you about that. About Cause that. that's a good opportunity for it. You've, you've opened the door for a good journalist question here is that, so you're sober now when you look back at your work, do you see compromises or shortcomings? Do you think like, Oh, I could have done this differently. Or do you, are, are you clear with it? How do you feel about it? Um, I think uh, alcoholism for me, and I've noticed this in other people too, was uh, under the influence of alcohol, you're full of bravado. The morning after, you're sort of kind of in this depressed state and you're not making the best choices. So uh, I was always hung over when we were shooting, you know, and eager to get to that first drink of the day at the end of the day. So uh, I think I would have made a lot of different choices and I would have been more confident about uh, just taking control of the camera and shooting stuff myself instead of paying other people to do it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, could have, even though those movies were done very cheaply, they could have been done even more cheaply if I had just been willing to take on and clear headed enough take on the cinematography and all of that, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. You could have had total control. Right. Vision, right. Yeah. Right. Which is what I have now. And I'm feeling real good about that. Let's talk about it. So tell <laughs> us what you're working on now. Tell us where all this has led you. Uh, where it's led me is when we were doing the, um, uh, special features for the abomination. Uh, the cameraman for those was Mark Polonia. And I'd never heard of Mark Polonia. So this, we're talking maybe three years ago, I met Mark. And uh, I really liked him. He's just a real easy guy to get along with. He's very self-deprecating. Uh, but he told me he had done 80 features. And I went, really? And uh, <laughs> so I looked up some of his movies and uh, some of them I liked and some of them uh, were not that appealing to me. But I very much admired that he had carved out his own niche and almost his own genre of filmmaking and his tenacity to keep with this prodigious output. He's getting close to 100 now um, is, you know, it, it harks back to people like William Oneshot Bodine and people like that that were making these really cheesy movies back during the studio period. Anyway, uh, so after I saw his movies and I saw Tangerine and some other films that had been shot on cell phones, I thought, I need to learn how to do this because this is a totally different world. First of all, the image quality is good. And this is a totally different world than shooting film and transferring to video and all that kind of expensive stuff that I used to have to do. So uh, with this cell phone right here. Uh, 
I shot a spontaneous um, making it up as I went along movie as a student project for myself called Christmas Craft Fair Massacre. My partner, Patrice Klepas, makes jewelry and she does a lot of these craft fairs. And I'm often sitting there with her, twiddling my thumbs and getting bored. And we were at a really big one at Christmas time. And I thought, what if the principal of this school is sacrificing people down in the basement? You know, and that became the germ of the idea. And so just kind of over the next several weeks, got all of my friends and relatives who were willing to, to play parts in this movie and learn, began learning to shoot video with my phone. And um, by the end of that production, I had learned a lot. But of course, a lot of the stuff I had shot initially was really awful. Um, but anyway, I cut it into a feature length project and Rob at Wild Eye released it and it's available on Tubi. And I like to think of it as a, a budding Christmas classic that 20 years from now, people will watch every Christmas, <laughs> which is probably not true. But uh, using what I, I learned know. on that project, I'm now currently in post-production on uh my take on the already very much overdone, but one of my favorite um, classics, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So that's what I'm working on now. Can I tell people I saw a little bit of it? Is that what you yes, shared? Yes, you're the very I, first person other than myself to have seen that footage. So thank you. I'm going to keep my lips I, sealed. I value your opinion. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to keep my lips sealed. But what I saw was fun, crazy and fun is what I would say. Yeah, it was intended to be crazy and fun. Absolutely, yeah, clearly so. You don't get that crazy on accident. You have to be aiming for it. As <laughs> <laughs> a tease for people, they're like, "What's he talking about?" They'll know soon enough. You come back and talk to him. No, I, I mean as a compliment too. I'm not like that's not like a. Oh, I know, thing. I know. No, well, what you're saying is very much in line with what people were saying about abomination and replicators. So. You know, now that I've You're got consistent. those releases out there, I'm trying to move forward in that vein. That's a good, that's, that's exactly what it feels like. How can, so your other work, I know we've got these visual vengeance uh, issues of these, uh, these Blu-rays. If people want to see some of these other films, are they in the digital sphere? Where can they get their hands on? Yeah, I think most of them are available on Tubi. Uh, I know that they're going to be doing a re-release of, uh, Highway to Hell uh, at some point. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You're uh, getting... I, I think Biotech Warrior and Time Tracers, which is the film with Jeff Combs, I think those are both available on Tubi. And uh, I think Time Tracers uh, holds up pretty well. Biotech has its own appeal. I like it because I wrote the script and I feel like the pacing's a little bit better than uh, Time Tracers. But Jeff Combs does a great job as Dr. Carrington in Time Tracers. So I was very happy to work with him. You know, I got to ask you the last page of this book, which, uh, by the way, any more books? You, you, How did you like writing? Oh, I love writing. I, I do it all the time. It's one of my favorite things to do. I have... Uh, Time Trap, I wanted to ask you. So is oh, this it, the... yeah, 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 yeah. It was originally called Time Tracers when I was putting it out as a limited edition DVD release, which I still have some of, and people can purchase them by going to 
texasschlock.com. Uh, Glenn Coburn suggested that I change the name to Time Trap. Well, I've since learned there's another movie out there with that same title, so I don't know if that played into why he said I should or or what. But anyway, so that one limited edition DVD release, only a thousand copies, all signed and numbered. Um, it's called Time Trap, but it's back to Time Tracers on Tubi, I believe. So, gotcha. Yeah. Um. Okay. So what, what I was gonna ask. So this book is being at the book at the same place you know texasschlock.com is a place where you can go if you want to buy directly from me and have your stuff signed or whatever you know if you don't care about that uh a lot of the stuff's available on amazon it's a beautiful book too because you do talk about we learn we learn about you and we see these filmmakers these these texas b-movie filmmakers through your eyes because you are walking us through their filmography so but that's valuable because we do want people to kind of hold our hands and, and like here's why i connect with this we need right. that and that's what this is right. it's not you know a stuffy academic study of uh of filmmaking but it is you're listen you're a very smart guy you're very uh you're very accomplished you're very talented and it comes through in everything that you do so i uh, Thank you. Congratulations on the book. Congratulations on this um, this next chapter and the rediscovery of the work that you've done in the past. It's a good time right now. So congratulations <laughs> a good on time. that. Yeah. Plus, I just had my first grandchild, so it's wonderful. It's a great. That is great. <laughs> Where do you want people to go follow are you? Are you active on social media? Well, you've mentioned the website. I am not active on social media, although I probably should be. Um, I have a Twitter handle, I think, but I haven't really posted anything on there. Okay. Um, if they go to texasschlock.com, there is a an email address there that I use for PayPal, but I also use it as a contact point for anybody who just wants to reach out. And I welcome uh, communication from anybody. Um, I get... Uh, lots of people just sort of serendipitously finding me one way or another and writing to me and asking about things. And I always welcome those conversations. So I encourage anybody who wants to reach out. I'll be glad to talk with you. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming here <laughs> Thank and talking. Thanks for watching that video and reaching out so we can talk about Sam Katz. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure for me. Me too. Thank you. I was really, uh, I, I, this was, uh, there was a lot of meat on these bones. You know what I'm saying? Like I knew we were going to talk about some of these movies. I knew we were going to talk about like Replicator is such a, a cult favorite. You know, it's got such a fan appeal because it's obviously clearly ridiculous. It's also like sexy. And it's one of those releases we were talking about in 2023 that a lot of people were talking about because it's just loaded. And the abomination is crazy i mean absolutely crazy crazy stuff so i knew we were going to talk about these movies but i wasn't sure exactly where else the conversation was going to go and uh mr mccormick has really impressed me with just his intelligence his eye to detail his vision and uh it's an absolute blast to talk to him so 
Remember, links are in the description where you can support him. Check out these movies. And uh, you can support and check out Serial at Midnight by liking, rating, and reviewing. I do want to shout out, we are a five-star podcast uh, on Apple Podcasts. I want to read this review to you guys. This comes from Scam Detector 9000 which sounds like a fake account. It's real. Like I don't think AI wrote this. If it did, the AI is like... It's been listening because it knows what's up. So this says, no one else is doing this. It's a five-star review. No one else is doing this. Heath has created a wonderful podcast, YouTube channel, and community that many try to capture but can never truly match at the same time or at the same depth and care that Heath treats his work. The podcast includes industry guests and insiders that have such great perspectives about the entertainment industry. You also get to learn pop culture history when listening. Catch Heath on more commentaries and physical media releases too. So I didn't write that. I, like that's such a kind, that's a review that's like, I've, I see you serial at midnight. So I want to thank Scam Detector 9000. Um, you can review this podcast too, wherever you get your podcast, you can review them. If they're nice, maybe I'll read them on the show here, but, uh, I want to thank you guys for like this. It's, it often feels like serial men. It is kind of a secret, you know, like every celebrity ever, ever has a podcast. It seems like, and, uh, there's never been more competition for your time than there is right now, both in the podcast sphere and on YouTube. So uh, I just appreciate any time that you spend with me. And the only thing I would ask is that you uh, that you do the do the little clicky things that you can do to support, you know, to like, hey, hey, I like this. I'll give it a thumbs up. That you do subscribe so that you never miss an episode because I do try to keep these as topical as possible. Um, and I thank you for doing that. I really do. So th- listen, I'm going to tell you guys, this is uh, a... A, a, a boom time for podcasts. There was a little bit of a lull from the holiday period into January. It is, I mean, I got like daily interviews just about, it seems like, like three things in the next three days, three interviews in the next three days. There's a lot happening is what I'm saying. So stay tuned. I, I do not want you to miss these podcasts. They will be coming out uh, probably as soon as I can get them edited and posted, you know, I was kind of on like a two week schedule trying to drop them on Wednesdays that may be going out the window just so I can keep every, just keep up, right? Just keep up, get it out there. So do subscribe. So you do not miss any of these episodes. You do not want to miss any of these episodes because they are going to be, uh, really well <laughs> worth your time. All right. That's enough for that. Thank you guys. I appreciate you so very much. Stay tuned. Take care. Till next time. I will catch you later.